Let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. And uh, I want to share just a couple thoughts we've been going through on just reminding us. These are probably some of the only things. I think this is the third time maybe in eight years that I've gone over them and reminded us and preached through them on Baptist distinctives that uh, just using the name Baptist and looking down at it as an acrostic been used for years to be able to help summarize uh, the beliefs that we hold to. And uh, there is nothing wrong with being thankful that we're a Baptist and being thankful. And the reason for that is because we hold to the system of doctrine that comes from the Word of God. And so there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, I'm thankful I'm a Baptist. You ought not to be ashamed of it. And uh, it's okay. If you're ashamed of it, I hope you're not ashamed of your church. But when you join Granite State Baptist Church, guess what? We're Baptist. And uh, that's who we are. Not Baptist, Baptist with a P, okay? And uh, we looked at the Bible as our uh, sole authority, and that ought to be the number one thing we ought to hold to in all of our lives is that it's above every church creed, every church covenant, and uh, everything the Word of God takes preeminence. And so then we had the autonomy of the local church that we are individual churches and we do not have a church hierarchy um, that is set somewhere in um, big executive office buildings somewhere across our nation. But the head of this church is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we looked at the priesthood of the believer, and aren't you thankful for that, that uh, we do not need a human priest to go and confess our sins and to be a mediator between us and God, that we can go directly to the throne room of God. Isn't that a blessing? That at any time we can bow our heads and, uh, of course, make sure sin is confessed and forsaken and that there's nothing between us and the Savior and that we have the privilege and the right, and may I also say the invitation. Um, to be able to come to the throne room of God, and we're thankful for that. We get down to the letter T, and the letter T simply stands for two ordinances of the church. We believe in two ordinances, and uh, not sacraments, they're ordinances that have been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ that have been established in Scripture. And uh, the two ordinances I'll give them to you that we believe in, we believe in believer's baptism, and we believe in the Lord's Supper. Okay, also called communion. And so we're going to look at these based very simply um, in Scripture. You notice that I said we believe in believer's baptism. Okay, and uh, there's a lot of things that are called baptism, but they're not really baptism. Can someone tell me what the very definition of the word baptism, what does baptism mean? Brother Nagley. It means to immerse, okay? If it's, if it's in a, a verb sense, then you are immersing something, and that means you are baptizing it. We actually have the word baptism. There wasn't an English word for it when it was being translated, so it's what they call a transliteration, just, just letter for letter. The Greek word is baptizo, and uh, where we have baptism, same thing. But it means to immerse. And so let me ask you this. Um, it just in the very definition of baptism, if you have some water poured on your head, is that called, is that truly baptism? 
You haven't been immersed in anything, have you? If you have some water sprinkled into your face, is that biblical baptism, even by the the basic definition of it? No, it's not. And so what they call, now listen, you can even go back, and I went back and verified this, go back to Noah Webster's dictionary, and just look up baptism, and uh, it actually talks about immersion, the very definition of it is to immerse. Then at the end of it, it says another form called sprinkling or pouring that they call um, christening. And so even back then, there was a distinction in what it is. Now, may I remind us that's part of the basic understanding on why we're called Baptist is because we believe in baptism. That's where it comes from, okay? In fact, and you can go back, I don't have an exact date on when the term started being uh, used, but actually the term Baptist was used all the way back in Jesus' time, okay? And who was first called the Baptist? John. You have John the Baptist, not because he was a leader of a denomination, but yet he was baptizing, okay? He was not sprinkling, and uh, I've heard people say this over the years that, uh, and, and listen, we have a good time with it. They say, well, you know, Jesus was a Baptist, right? He was baptized by John the Baptist, right? He wasn't, wasn't John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian. It was John the Baptist. Well, he was called that because he baptized. Well, the term really wasn't used for a while. You get up towards the, the Reformation through the Dark Ages, actually, when they were persecuting Christians. And the term Baptist, because of baptism, was actually a derogatory term. I've said this a few times previously. It was actually a derogatory term that they started calling Bible believers, they started calling them an, an Anabaptist, which is a rebaptizer. And so really what they were saying is they studied from the Word of God, and we're going to look at this matter of believer's baptism, and they said, well, you can't baptize babies because that's not believer's baptism. And so after someone would trust Christ as their Savior, they then baptized them after salvation, and so they started being called rebaptizers, Anabaptist. It was a derogatory term. Oh, you're an Anabaptist. You're a, you're a rebaptizer. You're one of those. Well, it became to be used as a uh, title that described the system of beliefs that they held to with baptism after salvation. That's what we hold to today. And so we look at these two things, and you guess it, I'm going to start with baptism. I believe I'll get through both of them, but just in case, I want to really nail this point home on this matter of baptism today. And I think we ought to go to the Scriptures in a very practical application about baptism and actually where we see it take place Okay, and so in Acts chapter number 8, we have the evangelist named Philip, and uh, it helped me if I'm not in Romans chapter number 8. I look down and I'm like, that's not quite the verse that I'm going to read right there, and uh, it would work, but we'll get get over there. But uh, in Acts chapter number 8, I want you to see this, that uh, in verse number 29... 
We'll start reading there. This is about believers' baptism, okay? Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest what thou readest. To set the context, I didn't back up uh, back into verses 26 and 27 that you have a Ethiopian eunuch that had been up to Jerusalem for to worship. And he's leaving Jerusalem. He's in his chariot, and he is reading the Old Testament uh, book of Isaiah. Okay? So he's reading that. The Holy Spirit of God brings Philip alongside and says, Go talk to that man in the chariot there. Philip runs, joins himself to him, and asks him this question Understandest what thou readest? He's reading the scriptures. Do you understand what you're reading? Well, then this, verse 31, and he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was, uh, was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth. That's actually a reading. You go back to Isaiah chapter number 53. And so Philip has joined himself to this, this Ethiopian eunuch. He is reading in the book of Isaiah. And in verse 34, it says, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? So he's asking the question, who's Isaiah 53 talking about? Now we know this, don't we? We know the answer. Who is Isaiah 53 talking about? Talking about Jesus Christ, isn't it? Now, we know that. You know why? Because someone taught us the Scriptures. Because someone explained the Scriptures to us. And here is someone. He is, listen, just out of the blue. Why did he pick the book of Isaiah? Was that the, the scroll that was available for him to be able to purchase while he's up in Jerusalem? Was there an evangelistic outreach in Jerusalem? There sure was, okay? 3,000 souls saved, baptized, added to the church. I don't know if they're distributing scriptures, but he gets a copy of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah, and he's saying, what's this mean? Is this talking about the prophet, or is it talking about someone else? Can you imagine if that question was given to us? Hey, I've been reading the Bible. Who's that talking about? The Bible says in the next verse, look at this, verse number 35, then Philip opened his mouth. And you know that's what a lot of the world is waiting for anyway, for us just to open our mouth and to be able to tell them about Jesus. And Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him who? Jesus. Now don't tell me you can't preach Jesus out of the Old Testament. If the whole book is about him, then guess what? You can preach him out of the whole book. I mean, after all, the first verse says, In the beginning, God. Verse 26 says, And God said, Let us make man. You have the plurality right there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all the way down through even Genesis chapter number 1. Starts in Isaiah, preaches unto him Jesus. By the way, there is no other message that is needed around this world to start with other than the message of Jesus. No other message that's needed. You say, well, this was a pretty wealthy man. Yes, the Bible says that he was actually the treasurer 
for Candace the queen down in Ethiopia. Pretty high position of authority. And may I also say this, a political leader. And yet he's reading the word of God and needs someone to explain it to him. Do you think God could have sent an angel along? But God didn't, did he? And I I love the phrase that the Ethiopian eunuch said. He said, how can I accept some man? Guide me. Now, it's not a chauvinist thing. He's talking about a human being being able to explain it. He didn't say that I need an angel from heaven to explain it to me. He said, I need a man to explain this to me. Tell me what it is. Preached unto him Jesus. Now, I want you to see this. You say, Pastor, I thought this was about baptism. It is. One of the greatest passages in the Scripture about the mode of baptism. Verse 36, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Okay, so he's just heard the message message of Jesus, and he asked the question about baptism. You say, well, why would that be the first question that he's asked? Well, I'll say this. If he's just coming from Jerusalem, guess what? He just saw 3,000 of them take place up in Jerusalem. Fresh on his mind. I guarantee you it took longer to baptize 3,000 people than it did for Peter to stand up and preach his five-minute message under the power of the Holy Ghost of God. And so the eunuch here is he asked this question. He said, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Now I want you to see where we go to for believers' baptism. It is verse number 37. So 36, the question is asked, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Verse number 37 is the answer to the question. I'm just going to pause right here and say if yours doesn't have verse 37 right now, I've got one that does have verse 37. It's a pretty important verse. Here's the verse. Verse 37. And as they went on the way, okay, verse 36, they went on the way, came to a certain water. See here what is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Can I say this? He's asking in verse number 36, what's the hindrance to baptism? Verse 37 is the hindrance. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's called believer's baptism. Now, if that verse is taken out, then there's no hindrance. What's the hinder, what doth hinder me to be baptized? If that verse is taken out, there's no hindrance because it just skips over and says, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. But verse 37 is the hindrance to baptism. That's why, can I say this? We don't hold to, as a Baptist church, we don't hold to infant baptism. We don't practice infant baptism. You know why? Because they have not come to the point of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's at that point when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that they are then qualified to be able to be baptized. 
Now, if baptism is by immersion, okay, it's not just a sprinkling. It's not just a pouring of water. It is a sprinkling. I mean, it is a immersion. English is hard today. We started that in Sunday school. English is hard today. It is an immersion completely in water. And so as a Baptist church, we believe in baptism by immersion, okay? Now, this baptism does not save us, okay? In fact, if someone gets saved and they die before they draw their last breath and go out into eternity, guess what? I believe according to the Scriptures, they're saved and they're with the Lord. Baptism for us is an outward picture of an inward belief that we believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and we believe that publicly. And it's our testimony to everyone that's around that we are identifying with Christ. In fact, the wording that we use is taken out of Romans chapter number 6. Let me read this to us. Romans chapter number 6. This is the wording that is used. And if you've ever heard me baptize someone or you've been baptized, I'll tell you what's a blessing is to look across an auditorium and be able to start picking out people that I've baptized. Isn't that a blessing? That ought to be the way it is in church, by the way. But we would also, we would, we would say that you are buried with him in the likeness of death and then you are raised to walk in newness of life with him, okay? That is a picture of what takes place at salvation. Look at Romans chapter number 6. And this is the spiritual picture. We just use the wording of it in the physical image of it. Verse number 3. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ like as Christ uh, was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We are saying publicly, we believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. Now, we talk about, and some will say, going down into that watery grave. Okay? That's just symbolic of Jesus being buried and being raised from the dead three days later. How many are thankful you don't have to stay under the water for three days, okay? Someone once said over the past couple baptisms, says, what is it, three times down, two times up, one time, something like that. And, uh, but no, it, it's just symbolic of it. It's just a testimony. But listen, we believe it takes place, according to Scripture, after you trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. In fact, that's the command that's been given that we're supposed to preach the gospel and we're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So really, baptism is the first step of obedience after salvation. First step of obedience. If you've trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and you've never been baptized, listen, it's time for you to be baptized. It's the first step of obedience. So many times we try to jump to all these other steps and be able to do everything we can to follow Christ and we never followed Him in the first step. Saved, 
and baptized. Now, may I also say this, that it does matter who baptizes you. Because actually the identity, not only are you identifying with Christ, but you're also identifying with the church that baptizes you. There are several that have been dunked, but I don't believe it's scriptural believer's baptism. Okay? Because you say, why is that? Well, if you're baptized, or excuse me, if you've been immersed, now think about this, by a church or religion that doesn't believe in Bible salvation, you don't have Bible baptism. There's no true salvation before that. So you need to have believer's baptism. If you're baptized in a church, you're dunked, you're fully immersed by a church that believes in work salvation, guess what? That's not, that's not Bible baptism. You're identifying with Christ and you're identifying with doctrine. And, and listen, I, we had someone that was saved here at the church and, uh, and we started discipling and, told, and, and taught about believer's baptism. And I told him, I said, you understand? I said, you're publicly baptized. And I said, you're joining the church. She said, I know. It makes me a Baptist. I mean, as thankful and as excited as could be about that. I'm thinking, why do we get ashamed about who we are? We're Baptist. We baptize. That's who we are. It's okay for that. There's several. Maybe you've been baptized into a Methodist church. You've never been baptized into a Baptist church. It's not Bible salvation beforehand. So it may not be Bible baptism afterwards. Okay? And so it's a matter of understanding that, listen, this is what we hold to. The command and the ordinance was given to the church. And I'm talking about churches, listen, that don't believe Bible salvation is what I'm saying. If, if, if you held to the doctrine of that church and were baptized there and it's not Bible salvation, okay? So don't get confused on that. And we look at this, we believe that the ordinance has been given to the church to be able to baptize. That's why you don't just go running across the country and someone jumping in a swimming pool out back saying, hey, we're just going to baptize everybody in the community. I believe the authority for baptism has been given to the church and the church does it. The church gathers together and it's a rejoicing time when someone is following the Lord in believer's baptism. That, that public profession of faith. The same thing here. As soon as the eunuch in Acts chapter number 8 said this statement, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What did Philip do? Verse number 38, And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Okay? You don't have to go down into the water if you're just pouring water on his head. You don't have to come up out of the water if you're just sprinkling it in his face. Okay? And so we believe in Bible baptism after salvation is when it takes place, okay? Now, I remember being baptized as a child. I was like Brother Caleb. That uh, I remember being saved when I was five years old. Remember it like it was yesterday. I remember a few weeks later, listen, my dad baptizing me. And listen, I don't know if he was trying to drown me or what, but I was so short 
that that I, I floated across there. I, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't touch the bottom on my tippy toes. And so he he floats me across the entire baptistry and holds me buoyant in the water like this and drops me down, brings me back up, floats me back over where I can get my footing. Hey, I knew what I was doing. I knew I'd been saved. I knew I needed to be baptized. We think about the second ordinance, and I'll spend a little bit of time here, but uh, that's, we believe in two ordinances of the church. We believe in believers' baptism. It does matter. Well, I'm scared of water. I'm scared of this. I'm scared of that. I honestly believe this. I believe the Lord will give you the strength to be able to do it. Ladies, say this. I don't want to get my hair wet in front of everybody. Isn't it wonderful that God gives the ability to be able to go through that? And uh, listen, I know it's humbling to be able to say I identify with Christ. But that's okay. That's okay. And so I'm thankful for the first ordinance of believer's baptism, and then we go into the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Okay? Now, we're going to turn over. We just read this, and actually we'll be um, partaking of the Lord's table next Sunday. But uh, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians. We were just there. We read it first of every month. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, the Lord's Supper, communion as we call it, some call it the Lord's table, but as we look at it throughout Scripture, we're reminded that this was instituted, now listen, it's after the last supper of the Lord Jesus Christ, right before He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, He's betrayed, and then He lays down His life for each and every one of us. And so he, he had that, he gave the pattern for that as he was there with his disciples. But then later on, after his resurrection, we know that Paul was converted. Paul was called to be an apostle. Paul was taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's three years out on the backside of the Arabian desert where it's believed that Paul was instructed by the Lord. That was one of the qualifications, according to Acts, to be an apostle is you had to see the resurrected Christ. And Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives us, as the church, he's given it to the church here at Corinth, he's given the instructions for partaking of the Lord's Supper. And we see this in verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord. So where did these instructions come from? They came from the Lord, okay? That which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, okay, that's talking about the upper room, the Last Supper, which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord." But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep." 
For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. You can read the, the rest of the chapter down through there. Now, let me ask you this. Is the Lord's Supper, is communion, is it for the saved or is it for the lost? So everybody's in agreement that it's for the saved, right? So I believe that also according to the scriptures. Who were the instructions given to here in the book of Corinthians? It was given to the church, wasn't it? It was given to the church on this is what you should do and this is how you should do it. May I say there's no place in the scripture that says that the world is to take communion. No place. But it is given to the church. So that means, I believe this according to the scripture, you ought to be saved and baptized in order to be partaken of communion. You've taken the first step of obedience and then you take the steps afterwards. Okay? So we have communion. Now, there's false doctrines out there about communion. We do not believe that the wafer that is partaken of, actually becomes the body of Christ. We do not believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. Okay? Now let me also say this. We do not treat these ordinances as some religions treat their sacraments. It's not that you have to partake of all the sacraments to possibly have a chance at going to heaven. It's amazing you can do all of those things and then you're still not assured of a place in heaven. But then the Bible already said that it's not by works <laughs> that we can do anyway. Okay? So we're not to partaking of communion, the second ordinance of the church. We're not partaking of that in order to gain favor to try to get to heaven. We're partaking of that as a regular remembrance of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say this? The two ordinances that, that the church has, baptism and the Lord's Supper, both of them point to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what we ought to be remembering until the Lord comes. Both of them remind us of that. The gospel. Everything we do ought to be Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Now the bread, I started this, it does not become the body of Christ. The juice does not become the blood of Christ as you put it in your mouth. It's symbolic of that. He said here, ye do show the Lord's death. It's a word picture Okay, it's an object lesson for us to be able to remember in a literal way what Christ went through for us and how his body was broken and torn asunder, how his blood was beaten out of him. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so every step of this, now I'm a firm believer, and I'll say it every time, we don't use fermented wine. When it comes to communion time, you say, well, I've been in churches that do that. They get arrested for giving it to underage. Anyway, can I say this? The blood of Christ was not fermented or corrupt in any way. Anyway, fermentation and leaven throughout the scripture is always a picture and an image of sin in a believer's life. We give pure, unfermented grape juice. 
because it's the closest representation we have to the blood of Christ. It's the fruit of the vine. And we partake of that. Now listen, it is a time of remembrance and we understand that and the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ went through for us. But it's also a time of rejoicing and not just remembering because listen, what he did was sufficient. In fact, he mentions that. We read the verses down here. We do show the Lord's death till he come. In other words, we're celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ because He's not coming back if He's not alive. And we're celebrating that. The two ordinances of the church, listen, as a Baptist, this is what we hold to. Some have tried to to add more ordinances down through the years. And and listen, if if independent churches, they want to do a certain thing. I had one person tell me that they believe. And listen, if this is what they do in their church... I'm not telling them not to do it, but it's not that I'm not right with God. Some some have a foot washing service. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, I volunteer to wash everybody's feet in the church. But they do that because Jesus did that. Jesus washed the feet. But can I say this? You get over into into the New Testament where Paul's writing to us, He never instructs us on how to go through a foot washing service like he does instruct us how to go through the Lord's Supper. You say, well, I was part of a church and they washed feet. I'm not saying that it's unscriptural. If that's what they want to do, that's fine. Listen, I'll kneel down. I think some of the closest things, I believe it's a, the, the purpose behind Jesus washing feet was to show humility and as an example to the disciples that were around there. You know something? I have no problem. If you come up to me and say, Pastor, I really need you to wash my feet, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get a pan and I'm going to get some water and I'm going to get a scrub brush and I'll wash your feet for you if you need that done. I'd rather just tie your shoe. I mean, I'll, I'll humble myself and kneel down and I'll, I'll tie your shoe. I'm not above that. I believe it's a, it's a sign and an expression that Jesus was showing humility. Some have tried to add that as the ordinance. Some said that marriage was an ordinance of the church. I don't, I don't see that in the scripture. I do see the two instructions that we've been given is believer's baptism and how to conduct the Lord's Supper. So as a Baptist, that letter T right in the middle of it is for the two ordinances of the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now listen, they're not given as a way for us to get to heaven. I always go back, listen, that thief on the cross, guess what? He did not partake of communion and he did not get baptized. Them Roman soldiers did not say, oh, you believed on Jesus? Let me take you down off the cross. Let me baptize you. You can partake of communion, put you back up there for Jesus to say, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Never happened that way. They're not in order for salvation. They are because of salvation, and it's about pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. When communion gets more about a ritual than it does about our Savior then it's wrong. And when baptism, listen, it's not just about, and I know, I'll just call it out. There ain't nothing spiritual about going down to the park and them having a baptism party down here in Keach Park, whatever church it may be, and everybody can just decide to get baptized if they want to. 
No. I think they baptized like 200 people one day. Hey, listen, that's not scriptural baptism. I'm talking, someone brought that up, and, I, and so I asked them. And listen, it was a local church around here that goes up here, sets up a baptism. And I hear about baptisms taking off down the road here in the next town, down at the end of the road anyway, whatever grace they're trying to exercise down there. Well, I got baptized. I just wanted to turn over a new leaf in my life. That's not Bible. That's not why someone is baptized. Guess what? You get saved one time in your life. One time. So guess how many times I need to be baptized? Once. Guess how many times Jesus died for us? Once. Guess how many times he rose from the dead? Once. Hey, listen, saved, baptized, believing, practicing Christian, following the Word of God, move on with the Christian life. Some people get so hung up on, I'm getting baptized over and over and over again. They never move on and go serve God and do anything. But you know something? The devil would just be just as happy to keep people all the way back here stuck on that doctrine of salvation and baptism. And if they can get them stuck there, guess what? They ain't never going on doing anything for God. What about moving on in our Christian life? We have the Lord's Supper. Listen, I know you've been in some churches and they say, well, we partake of the Lord's Supper every week. Some churches, hey, we do it every month. We've started here. We're going to do it the first Sunday of every month. Some say, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You know the Bible doesn't even give a pattern on how often we're supposed to do it. All he says in the scriptures that we read is, as oft as you do this. Do it in remembrance of me. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say, now you have to do this every week. It doesn't say you have to do this every month. It doesn't say, boy, you have to do this on Christmas Eve. It doesn't say that. I've been drawing more and more, and that's why we're doing it once a month now, is because of the importance of remembering the gospel, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ, plus it's an added time as a solemn reminder to examine ourselves to make sure that we're right with God. Make sure that sin is confessed and forsaken and repented of. So as a summary, we're a Baptist. We believe in believer's baptism and we believe in the Lord's Supper as explained in the Scriptures, what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. That's where we stand. That's what we hold to. You say, well, I want to do this. I want to do that. Remember, B for a Baptist is the Bible is our final authority, our sole authority in all matters of faith and practice. And so we hold to those two ordinances that the Lord gives to us, steps of obedience, and both of them point to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Aren't you thankful we've got something to stand upon? We've got a solid foundation to be able to stand upon. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for the word of God. Lord, thank you that you have actually given us physical representations to be able to have until we see you face to face. Lord, that we get to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Lord, there's an outward profession of faith in believer's baptism. Lord, the only thing today 
that hinders someone from being baptized is believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the only thing that hinders. And Lord, if someone has believed that and they've called upon you for salvation, Lord, they need to follow you in believer's baptism, that first step of obedience. And then, Lord, I'm thankful for the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we remember and we rejoice and show the Lord's death till He come, the death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, I pray that we'd be found faithful to that which You've entrusted to us to hold true to the doctrine of the Scriptures. Thank You for giving us a foundation to be able to stand upon now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.